This is Atypical Parenting, the podcast for parents and caregivers for those on the autistic spectrum. My name is Dawn Tree, and I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner. But more importantly, I'm the mother of a 32-year-old adult autistic son. Each week, along with special guests, I hope to bring you relevant information and lots of encouragement as we walk this journey together. Welcome to Atypical Parenting. We're talking today about friendship, and today is the third part of a three-part series. So if you missed those last two episodes, go ahead back and check them out. The first was about maintaining adult friendships as the parent of a person with autism, because that has its own unique challenges. And last week was about school-age children and young children and how to help them to develop adequate social skills. And today's episode is about adults, young adults, um, you know, technically older adults. When you hit 18, you are an adult in the United States. So um, I'm talking about young adults and adults on the spectrum. And as the parent, our caregiver or someone who loves them, what we can do about it and how can we understand this whole process better. So let's start by talking about autism. And I'm sure we all know, but I want you to understand completely that autism spectrum disorders are characterized by impairments in communication and social interaction. Think about what that means. Everything you do as a neurotypical person revolves around social interactions. From the moment you get out of bed and take care of your family, to driving, to walking into your workplace, to paying your bills, to picking up food at the grocery store, to everything, like your entire day. Social interactions. It's just something we take for granted. It's just something that we do. We don't think a whole lot about it because it comes naturally. People with autism don't have that luxury because autism affects how people relate to each other. This includes things like trouble inferring how other people think or feel, decreased interest in engaging with other people, trouble understanding emotions or how they're expressed, and they also struggle with literal interpretation of non-literal language, such as figures of speech or metaphors. Autism is a neurodevelopmental condition, but remember that doesn't mean that someone with ASD can't change his or her behavior. It's entirely possible for people on the spectrum to acquire new skills. And I think we would all agree with that. So when it comes to social skills, they're no different. They are something that can be learned and acquired. And for us to not encourage our adult children to reach their full potential is really not good. It's not right because we wouldn't do it to our typical children. Our autistic children deserve that same faith in their ability to succeed. People with autism generally have an excellent ability to develop an awareness of their emotions and to learn to manage them appropriately if they're given the opportunity. With self-awareness and self-regulation, they then will have a chance to begin to understand other people's feelings and to respond effectively. And isn't that what we want? We want them to be able to be out in the world and to be able to understand other people's feelings and to respond appropriately and effectively in ways that other people are comfortable with. Remember, social skills are an area of struggle in people with autism. But again, how insulting is it to presume that someone with autism can't learn new skills? Social skills, like any other skills, can be studied, developed, and mastered. As someone who loves a person on the spectrum, the most important thing to remember 
is that we want to set a goal of increased social interaction for them. If we want to do that, they must be right there with you. It has to be about their goals because your goals right now at this time when your child is an adult are completely irrelevant. Younger children, they're a different story. You have some ability, some control to get them to do things that you think might benefit them. And that's cool. That's good. That's what we're supposed to do as parents. But at this point, when your children are adults, they have agency over what happens in their own lives. If your adult child is not ready for increased social interaction, it's just not going to happen. As a parent, you can want something for them until the cows come home. But unless it aligns with what your adult child wants, you're wasting your time and energy and you really need to shift gears. So this requires that we as parents and caregivers simply provide support and guidance if we are asked. It's really about boundaries. And I think boundaries with our adult children who have autism is a really important topic that we are going to explore much more in a later episode. So it's about boundaries for ourselves and realizing that this is about them and their lives and what they want. Sit down with your adult child and ask them, what do they want to change in their lives and how can you help them with that? What goals do they want to work on? If their goal indeed is to increase social interactions, or if they're expressing that they might want a friend or a romantic partner, or maybe they just want to feel more comfortable in the general community and be able to go places on their own without feeling scared or anxious. I've put together some simple, specific goals that you might consider together. Number one, reducing behaviors like isolating themselves or emotions like anxiety that interfere with successful engagement. Number two, increasing the number of people that they engage with. That seems simple, right? Number three, improving the ways that they respond to other people in those social situations. And number four, finding opportunities to utilize the social skills that they've learned. So when we're thinking about these goals, while keeping the symptoms of autism in mind, let's focus on some things that can be done. The first goal I listed was reducing behaviors or emotions that interfere with successful engagement. When it comes to social emotional deficits in autism, We need to remember that the root of all social interaction between humans is emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence refers to a person's capacity to be aware of or to control and to express their own emotions. It also refers to the ability to handle interpersonal relationships with good judgment and empathy for the other person. Developing emotional intelligence is the first step in this entire process because although someone on the spectrum may be very intelligent overall, emotional intelligence generally is an area of weakness. And this isn't an insult, it's simply a fact given that the criteria for ASD is a deficit in social functioning. That being said, once an autistic person decides to learn and understand the concepts of emotional intelligence, They really can become quite keen at it all and understand it in ways that we as neurotypical people never will because we never have to think it through and analyze it. We just do it, right? So how do we develop emotional intelligence? Individual therapy is a great place to start. It's going to help you develop self-awareness. 
But unfortunately, I'm sure you guys know that finding a competent, affordable therapist is a really huge challenge today. And it's made even more challenging when you're looking for someone with autism experience. So if that's not an option, the next best thing, in my opinion, is to start a journal of emotions. Because that can be a really helpful thing that can be done easily at home. And it simply means keeping a record of what you notice when you're upset. So again, I'm saying you in the general sense just because it's hard to explain otherwise, but when I'm saying you and when I'm saying things that need to be done, I'm talking about the person with autism and I'm talking about them buying in and wanting to do this, okay? It's not something you're going to be able to force, so don't even bother. Keeping a record of what you notice when you are upset, confused, angry, sad, or experiencing any other intense emotion leads to better self-awareness. And the first step for anyone, autistic or not, in improving social skills is noticing the emotions that might be interfering. Noticing is just a really simple way to, say, being mindful. And I know like mindfulness seems to be a big catchphrase today. And a lot of times it's used in ways that seem really kind of out there or mystical. But it's really not. It's simply about intentionally sustaining attention in any given circumstance. We all need training in being mindful, especially here in the U.S. where most of us are addicted at least to some level to our electronic devices. I have two phones sitting on the desk next to me, a laptop that I'm reading from, the notes, and a laptop that I'm recording from. Like, what the heck is that? Four different devices just to complete one project. And I'm looking at my phones every couple of minutes. It's silly. It's ridiculous. We're all, we're all addicted. So if you're not addicted, I want to hear from you because I want to know how to do it. Study after study shows that mindfulness comes from intentional practice. It's not a natural state of being for most people, especially, like I said, in our current society. And it's going to take commitment and work, sometimes really uncomfortable work because emotions are messy. I think it's a great idea to treat this emotion journaling practice the same way you would treat regular therapy. You have to commit to the process. You have to set aside time, ideally at least twice a week, and stick to it, even when it's not convenient, even when you don't feel like it. Follow it through, even when it's not pleasant, because those are the times when the breakthroughs are going to come. Once some degree of mindfulness is established and episodes are noticed and documented regularly, the next step is to look at those emotional episodes and decipher what was happening before the emotions started. Another fancy way to say that, which we use in psychiatry and psychology, is what was the antecedent? Or a more common word that you guys might know is trigger. What was the trigger? So I don't want you to go back and look at all of the things that you documented and then try to remember. I want you to just continue to move forward, noticing these strong emotions, documenting the incidents, but then take it a step further to spend some time figuring out what it was about those situations that preceded those particular feelings. Now, it's completely normal to be confused about how it all interacts because it's complex and sometimes it's not obvious at all. But the more practice you have, the easier it will get. Remember, too, that journaling doesn't have to be about writing. It can be typing or a voice to text or even a voice memo. 
It can be done verbally with a supportive person. Any way that's comfortable for you is the way it should be done. Because any way it's comfortable for you is a way that you're going to do consistently. And that's the most important part. It's really about processing the emotions and learning from the experiences. So however doing this exercise feels comfortable is the way that you should do it. Sometimes though, anxiety, irritability, and depression are part of the diagnostic picture for socially isolated adults with autism. And when these emotions rise to the level of a comorbid mental health illness, no amount of mindfulness or introspection will help. So all of that stuff I talked about journaling, that it's going to have to get put on hold for right now because the priority has to be getting treatment for the mental health illness. These illnesses can severely limit a person's ability to start the process of improving socialization. Low motivation, low energy, generalized body pain, or somatic symptoms like headaches or stomach problems, insomnia, feeling worried or fearful or guilty. All of these things are symptoms that make it nearly impossible to engage socially. Honestly, it's nearly impossible to get through your f***ing day when you're feeling that way. So remember that underlying mental health symptoms must be treated adequately in order for any of what we're talking about today to be effective. If possible, you want to find a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner who is well-informed on autism to get an evaluation. Treatment by a general practitioner in these cases really isn't a good idea, you know, unless it's, there's always special cases, but in general, it's not a great idea due to the specific challenges of the autistic nervous system. Just to jump ahead, the next goal was, I do not have a smooth segue for that. So the next goal was increasing the number of people you engage with. So let's just back it up. Let's assume that your mental health is in a good place. You've taken some time to journal and to understand a little bit about your emotions and why they tend to flare up and what are the kinds of things that are difficult for you. And so now you're feeling ready and you're going to start increasing the number of people you engage with. Many autistic people experience painful social isolation. It's painful. It's literally painful to be socially isolated. Not only mentally, but physically. It's an ache. Loneliness is one of the most difficult emotions that we feel as humans. And yet the idea of increasing the number of people that a person with autism engages with can feel so overwhelming that they don't want to even start it. And so because of that, this goal will probably need to be preceded slowly. And again, I'm going to say it again. It's got to be driven by the individual. As a parent or caregiver, you might be able to help with providing structure, um, like setting up a schedule or a plan. You might be able to help by accompanying the person outside of the house into the community. Those are great things, but this has to be about them and what they want. When expanding the number of people that you have contact with, you might want to start with people that you already know, like family members or close family friends. Another low-risk option is interaction with people at a, maybe like a drive through restaurant or at a place with low stimulation and not too many people like the local library during downtime, off hours when things aren't going on. 
And once you get comfortable with that sort of thing, a social group can be an amazing place to develop friendships. Social groups where the members have similar interests are a really good place to start because having common ground or something that the members all enjoy makes it easier to start and maintain conversations, right? Like if you are interested in, I don't know, computers and the group is about arranging flowers, you're not going to have a whole lot to talk about. So if you can find groups of people who all are interested in computers, that's going to be a much better place for you to hang out and to meet people. Finding groups is another tough thing, but there's ways to do it. It can be accomplished by online searches for local activities. There are um, activity pages for that the counties generally run. Uh, social media, things like Facebook, which personally, I hate Facebook, but it's okay. It does have a lot of great opportunities to find events in your area. Um, there's also a uh, website called meetup.com. I don't know if you guys know about that, but meetup.com has a specific Asperger's syndrome meetup page, which lists events that are autistic, autism friendly or specifically only for autistic people all over the place in all different locations. So that's worth checking out for sure. And if all that fails, you can also look for local sports clubs or public talks or art gallery events or maybe open mic nights at small venues. You might try to find like groups with similar interests that revolve around learning a new skill. Local high schools or um, colleges, they often run adult education courses in things like art or language or computer skills or cooking. And I've taken some of them and they're actually pretty awesome. So check those out. The third goal is going to be improving the ways that you respond to other people. And honestly, this ties in with the fourth goal too, which was practicing the new skills that you've learned. So this learning a new skill thing, if you can think of any skill that you've learned, I can't imagine that you picked it up immediately. You needed to practice, right? Riding a bike. You have to practice. Uh, recently, I learned, I relearned how to roller skate. I had to practice. Uh, cooking. You have to practice. So this is what this is about. It's about finding low stress settings and starting to focus on improving direct interactions. Start simple, like using appropriate greetings with a smile. That's a two-step thing, right? Like it's a little complicated, but you can do it. Asking for help to find something in a store maybe, or asking for directions and then thanking the person while making brief eye contact. That again is a two-step process that takes practice. When you're meeting new people, it might be useful to have some prepared questions or introductions to start a conversation. So a lot of times people use things like the weather or they talk about TV programs. That's my favorite question because I feel like there's never anything good on TV. So I love when I don't have anything to say to somebody, I say, oh, are you watching anything good on TV lately? I'm always looking for new shows. And that 100% of the time starts a conversation for me anyway. You might want to talk about films you've watched or you want to watch or books you've read or want to read or music that you like. You could ask somebody what they did over the weekend or what they or if they have plans to do anything next weekend. You 
Uh, also, though, want to remember that certain topics are really best to avoid. And we all know these topics, right? Like as a neurotypical person, you never ask somebody if they're pregnant unless you know for sure. You don't ask a woman her age, right? You don't ask how much money somebody makes. So in general, you don't want to ever, you want to avoid critical comments about a person's appearance or their body. And there are other questions that you want to avoid until you get to know somebody better, like about religion or politics or money. And honestly, a lot of times those topics lead to nowhere good anyway. So it's not a terrible idea to keep them completely off the table. Sometimes when you are practicing your new social skills, it's really difficult to be sure whether the person you're talking to wants to keep talking about the topic. And if you're unsure, you could say something like, would you like me to tell you more? Or something similar to that, because by checking in with the person, you are decreasing any confusion. And you're allowing the other person an opportunity to say, actually, I'm not interested in learning more about that, but let's talk about this. You know, and so checking in with the person is a perfectly appropriate way to interact with somebody, especially if you don't know them that well, because you don't feel free enough to speak freely, right? Like if you are just meeting somebody socially, you're not really going to say, uh, okay, that's enough about that topic. Whereas if you have a good friend, it's easy to say that kind of a thing and not be insulting. Remember, every opportunity to practice social skills is valuable and everyday opportunities are all around us. So much of what neurotypical people do in any given day, like I talked about before, are excellent opportunities to practice social skills for someone with autism. But you must actively and intentionally find those opportunities to utilize the social skills you learn. Otherwise, if you don't like intentionally seek out these opportunities, you're going to stay in your comfort zone and you're never going to have a chance to practice. You must actively and intentionally practice. You have to utilize the social skills you learn. Otherwise, you're never going to get comfortable using them. It's like learning a new language, literally. It's like learning a new language. You can memorize the words. You can watch other people do it. But unless you have real conversation with other people who speak that same language, the social skills that you're trying to become fluent in, you will never become fluent. And now as parents, please remember that for a person with autism, this is important. So if you've tuned me out, I want you to pay attention now. I know that I can get rambling on. Seemingly simple social interactions probably require a lot more intentional thought and emotional energy for your adult child than you will ever be able to comprehend because they come naturally to you. Learning new social skills require concentration, just like learning any other skill. And it can be extremely difficult and overwhelming. Don't forget that. When you get in the car and you have this great plan and you're going to go to the library and you're going to talk to the librarian and you're going to search out some book, right? Like you have this whole plan. You've talked about it. The person wants to do it. You've taken the day off of work, maybe. It's all planned. You're all, all ready. You get in the car and the whole thing falls apart because your adult child just doesn't have the capacity to regulate themselves. 
or they don't have enough spoons to get through the day. We're going to talk about spoon theory in a minute. So please give them grace and know that every attempt is still achieving something. Another note I want to make on that point, the same point, is that as interactions increase, the possibilities of overstimulation also increases. So an interaction might go extremely well in the moment. I'm thinking of a time when an autistic child went to a wrestling match and, and they, that child loved wrestling. They loved all the characters. They loved the action. They loved watching it. They loved the drama. And they were so excited to go to this event. And the event went swimmingly. They paid attention. They got to get up close and personal with some of the wrestlers. They got a souvenir. They, you know, it just went perfect. And everybody was so happy. And then as soon as all of that adrenaline wore away and the feeling of overstimulation and being unable to regulate that child's nervous system, they had a meltdown and they completely freaked out. And it became this huge chaotic situation where everybody was left feeling awful. And the parents could not figure out why that had happened. Because like I said, everything had gone great. But why it happened was because the child was overstimulated and didn't have the ability to regulate their nervous system anymore. They had an ability to hold it together. But then when all of that was done, the resources were gone. They were used up. So remember. Even though it goes well, once they're back in a safe environment, there might be a meltdown or an emotional episode of some sort. For this reason, these practice sessions must be sandwiched between self-care activities and downtime. The interactions themselves should not be the entire focus of what you're doing here because you also need to consider the response to the interactions. Right? Like, if we think about spoon theory, like I just mentioned before, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, but that's spoon theory is, is basically where the idea that every person starts with a set number of spoons for the day. And in general, people with autism have fewer spoons. And the spoons represent internal resources. So each stressor, big or small, uses up some portion of those spoons. And you guys know when you get home from work or from your long day or from whatever, Sometimes you are just shot. You have nothing left. Well, our kids with autism, our adult children with autism, they run out of spoons much quicker because they start with fewer. So when you think about spoon theory and the amount of resources your child has, you need to set reasonable expectations as you move through the process. You can't push them when they're not ready. The goal never needs to be to simply increase social contact, but to increase enjoyable social contact. Because otherwise, what is the point? And also remember that each time an interaction goes well from start to finish, it's building confidence in them. When someone is pushed too hard or not allowed time to decompress before and or after, the outcome may be a meltdown, which erases a lot of the positive feelings from the successful interaction. So be mindful of that. 
Now, lastly, I just want to discuss the topic of whether or not to tell others about an autism diagnosis. And there are both pros and cons to consider when deciding to disclose. Because deciding to disclose something so personal about you, about the fact that you have autism, it's a really big decision. Groups that you might attend for exclusively autistic people, it's not really an issue because as a participant, you're going to already be assumed to be autistic. And pretty much everyone else there is autistic as well. So it's totally not a big deal there. However, when you're attending a group that isn't specifically for, for autistic people, it's got to be individualized. It's up to the individual whether to tell people and they're going to make a different decision based on each individual situation. Giving people the information about your diagnosis can give them a better understanding of your needs. And the group might be able to offer additional support. But unfortunately, some autistic people feel that disclosing their diagnosis leaves them vulnerable to bullying or discrimination of some sort. If you are joining a group and you aren't sure about this, you might want to try talking about it with your family or with the person who organizes the group to see what their feeling on it is. Um, and that way, too, that you're going to have the support of those people that you trust and that you're going to for advice. That is the end of my four suggestions, and I hope they've been helpful. I know that it's frustrating as a parent to watch your child be isolated and lonely, and it's even more frustrating to know that your child is an adult and you don't have a whole lot of say about what happens and, and what they do with their time. But I truly believe that if you work with them, if you give them an opportunity to tell you their goals, their desires, without pushing or pulling or coercing, they're going to open up and they are going to work with you towards these goals. I will also encourage you that this shit is not going to happen overnight. This is probably going to take a year or more to just get to a basic level where they can be out in public if they've been socially isolated and reclusive. It's uncomfortable. It's painful. It's hard. And yet, I have total confidence. I have complete faith that they are capable of doing it. And I hope you do too, because that confidence that you have is going to rub off on your autistic adult child. Thanks for listening today. I hope you got something out of that. And I know I always say that, but really that's my goal is to bring you value and to help you find just a little bit of relief from the suffering that you have to watch your child go through. Because when our kids suffer, we suffer. And it's as simple as that. I want you to know that I did a lot of research on this episode and I personally found a lot of nuggets that I'm gonna incorporate into my life. If you've heard anything today that you think you're gonna incorporate or you don't understand, or even if you think it's like really dumb, feel free to message me. Send me a message on Instagram at atypical underscore parenting. Leave a comment under the post. Maybe we can even start a discussion because if you have a question or a comment, other parents who are in a similar situation also have that same question or comment. So go ahead, do it, be brave. Thank you guys. Have a wonderful week and I'll see you next time.